This is the word of the Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose. And immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's seek the Lord. Oh God, we do ask blessing upon the reading and preaching of your word as we enter again into another common passage. May we see with the eyes of faith that would never grow bored with the truth of your word, the stories of our Lord. Oh Lord, give us love and fill us with life from your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Used to love, back when I was able to watch TV with cable, I guess in high school and then into seminary, I used to love the commercials for the crazy products that came on late at night. I loved them because they were fantastic to see the ridiculous things that people would buy and what they would pay for it. This amazing waterproof thing that was this new revolutionary technology This magic pill that will make you younger and reverse your age by 20 years. I I loved the products and watching the marketing schemes. And then as I got a little bit older, I began to realize I didn't actually enjoy them as much because so many of the marketing schemes are aimed at desperation. Hey, you consumer that's desperate with this. Come buy my product because I will be the one who can fix your life. You have a problem with this, I'll give you that. If you have a problem with this, I have a pill for that. Come and uh, participate in the great exchange. 
Your money to me, 1995 shipping and handling, only three easy payments, and my magic beans to you. And that's really what it amounts to. Most late night commercials were uh, selling some form of magic beans, and I enjoyed the marketing scheme. It's particularly hard for us, most likely, to engage with that kind of marketing and even engage with a text like this because more often than not, we in suburbia do not live lives marked by desperation. I mean, like genuine, real desperation. I mean, like the last time, and you might think of this, I mean, it's probably been years. The last time you sat and you looked at a situation and you were like, man, I have no idea how I'm going to get out of this. I mean, you remember that feeling like last time you're in a car accident and it's that split second before the other car hits you and you know you're about to get hit and you're like, I don't even know how to get out of this. You realize there's a large part of humanity that lives with that feeling on an everyday basis. That stomach-dropping, ah, agony of life with no perceptible solution. No way to avoid the accident. No way to avoid the illness. No way to avoid the financial ruin. No No way to avoid an unjust king. Live with daily desperation. Because we don't naturally resonate with a passage, or I mean, with a a feeling like that, it it sometimes can make a passage like this feel a a touch sterile. It can take some of the heat and fire and color and sense of smell out of the passage that Mark is intentionally telling in such a way to kind of grab you by the cheeks and pull you in to that experience. He's introduced us to who Jesus is, and again here, demonstrating yet again, what is the ministry of the Lord Jesus? Well, it is a ministry of teaching primarily that's testified to with signs and with miracles. In the previous section, verse 40 and such, we see him heal a man and tell him, no, don't go tell anybody about it. And the man disobeys and witnesses which is, again, is an odd conundrum, but still one nonetheless. He's disobedient, and he goes and witnesses, and it picks up here in chapter 2 with the consequences of that action. Jesus returns to Capernaum where he lives. Now, we don't know who he lives with, whose house it is, but we know this is where he lives. And it's actually even in this opening kind of thematic backdrop that we're going to see our first point. The overwhelming warning against a hardened heart in hearing from the Lord Jesus. You see, Capernaum is a recipient of an amazing thing. In his adult ministry, Jesus spends more time in Capernaum than anywhere else. It is his home base. It's where he teaches the most, he preaches the most, he does the most miracles. It is home. In fact, actually, here you have it start with, he returns to Capernaum after some days, it was reported he's home. So the whole town shows up at his house. His whole living room is jam-packed with people, so much so they can't even get in the door. And what is it saying? What's he doing? 
Is he juggling? Doing magic tricks? Making flames come out of his thumb? He's preaching. Here you have the portrait of a town that's actually listening to the second person of the Trinity preaching. I mean, the greatest preacher of all time. He's God. And you would think, oh, man. I mean, this is, J.C. Ryle talking about this, says this is a town that gets to bask in the actual ministry of the Son of Righteousness. Like, they get to see him for who he is. They get to hear him for, I mean, they're watching miracles. And you would think, oh, man, out of all the places, out of all the people, these are the ones that are going to get it. Right? They're the ones that get to see Jesus when he lets his hair down, which is probably not the immaculate, you know, uh, extremely well-conditioned, gorgeous hair that you would get to see in the paintings that are ridiculous. Turn over to Matthew, though. Matthew chapter 11. And you get to see actually Jesus, how he views Capernaum. So it begins in chapter 11 when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. He went on from there to preach and teach in their cities. Continues down. Skip to verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you. Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. In sackcloth and ashes, but I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I mean, that right there, do not miss the rhetorical and emotional punch of that. I mean, the city that has a a unique sin named after it. And Jesus actually says, oh yeah, by the way, if this sin, which literally is famous for evil, this city is famous for evil. If they had seen what you, Capernaum, have seen, they would have been fine. They wouldn't have been destroyed because they would have changed. But you, Capernaum, you you, you missed it. Verse 24, I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow! You see, God actually here is organizing his economy so that we can think more carefully and more clearly about the nature of sin. In his economy and what he sees important, which is he saying is going to have the worst lot when they get to hell? Is it going to be Sodom? Is it going to be Tyre and Sidon? Cities famous for their cruel affliction of humanity, famous for their rejection of the living God, or will it be Capernaum? I mean, if we wanted to kind of put this in more of a current context, I mean, if we wanted to change kind of the illustrations to make it more 
clearly understood, he would be saying something to the effect of, woe to you, average pew sitter who never believes. It will be worse for you than it will be for Hitler. I mean, that's the point he's making. It will be worse for you than it will be for the founders of Planned Parenthood, for Lenin or Stalin, names that are synonymous with evil, cannot surpass the danger of the person who gets to see and experience and taste of the glory of the Lord and still reject We did this Thursday night in Bible study. We're going to do it Thursday morning in Bible study. In Hebrews 6, the warning given against that very person, the one who is enlightened to the truth of God in some fashion, the one who tastes of the Lord's Supper, the one who experiences the blessings of the body, the one who sees God at work and still rejects. Oh, what a scary day kind of frames out the way they're listening here in the backdrop a little different, doesn't it? Here you have an entire town that's gathered together. They're cramming into the living room of whatever house it is, and they're listening to Jesus preach, but you understand from his other ministry, they're not listening with the ears and eyes and hearts of faith. Maybe they're listening with a morbid curiosity. I mean, honestly, life would have had to have been pretty boring in those days. And there's no television. Maybe it's honestly an excuse to do something besides work because that's all they have. Maybe it's just as the new guy. Maybe this is a way to kind of stick it to their local priest who they really don't like. Who knows why they're listening, but we know from the Lord Jesus it's not through the ears and eyes and heart of faith. And oh, what a warning, what a danger this is for all of us today. You see, because that's a sin that easily translates into today, particularly here in the South, where everybody is a member of the church. Why? Because they were born in the county, right? York County. I'm from York County. It means I'm a member of a church somewhere. And the great concern that the Lord Jesus expresses over that. But the story doesn't start that, stop there. In fact, that's actually the backdrop. It's not really what the passage is about, but it frames it out very beautifully for us to see. And Capernaum gathers there. They're listening to the Lord Jesus preach. He's preaching the word to them. And then we get to the famous part, the part that we know. Some dudes show up with their fella who is paralyzed. We don't actually get much more of a description about that. We don't know the extent of his injuries. We don't know if this is one in which his paralysis is such where all he can do is lay there. We don't know if he's intellectually developed. We don't know a whole lot at this point. In fact, actually, I think that's part of the point of the story. Because the story is really about Jesus and it's about the friends, not the man who's wounded. And the buddies come and they bring him and they try to get in. And obviously they can't get into the room. We understand how that works. We've all seen a crowd. And so they go, hmm, put on their thinking caps. And they decide to break every single social norm known to man. 
They either find the ladder up to the roof or the stairs up to the roof or maybe over for the neighbors, take them up and then jump across roofs. We don't exactly know what the exact building looks like. But the way the grammar says is it's not exactly that they cut a hole in the roof. The way it reads in the original is they unroofed the roof. Sounds a little bit more violent, a little bit more destructive. And you think about, again, social norms and social etiquette. There's really kind of only a handful of things that are just completely and always unacceptable when you go to someone's home. (laughs) Unmaking the home is part of the things that's not acceptable. They destroy the roof. And again, I I would love to have seen what that's like is Jesus is preaching. I mean, you want to talk about distractions while you're preaching. I mean, he's not having to worry about the occasional sneeze or the, you know, the really loud child scream or something. The roof comes apart right above him. And again, the way that those roofs would have been made, it was uh, beams with straw on top of it with mud packed on top of that most likely, and then potentially tiles on top of the mud. So when it comes apart, it's not tidy. Again, amazing distraction. But again, we're familiar with this part of the story, but we would, again, I think probably go amiss if we didn't pause for a little bit and just contemplate the tremendous gift that is given to these men. You see, this is again where that feeling of desperation comes in. Because here they have a man who's paralyzed, and in this day and age, the time in which this is being written, what is his only hope for restoration? A miracle. I mean, it's not like he can hope for, you know, regenerative cell therapy. It's not like he can hope for platelets to be injected into his spine. It's not like he can go to Europe and get these crazy placenta treatments they do these days. It's not like they can grow stem cells and then put new ones in his back. I mean, there's nothing. This guy is toast unless he gets a miracle. And again, it would probably be a little bit amiss for us to just kind of skip over the amazing gift that their affliction is. I mean, think about it. In a time in which Jesus is actually living, breathing on the planet right there physically in front of them, and you have an entire town that's missing the point. Here you have a man that is given this tremendous gift of paralysis, And it creates such a sense of desperation that the Lord uses that to create faith. So much so that the guys are like, look, we have to get our friend in to see Jesus. And I don't really care what it does to my social anxiety or my social standing or any sort of consequence to my reputation. Because you've got to think, after they tear a guy's roof off, they're probably not getting invited around to anybody else's house. (laughs) But the illness creates this desperation in them and a desperation that they begin to understand can only be met by the Lord Jesus. And it's intriguing how rightly suffering does its job for them. We've talked about this in Hebrews 2 and in Hebrews 5, that suffering was the schoolmaster wherein Jesus' obedience was revealed. Likewise, for us, suffering is the classroom wherein godliness is created. 
But it is intriguing how much we still avoid it. And how much we think negatively of it. How much we feel like something or someone's out to get us when we have it. How much we flee from it. And it's intriguing here that in this chapter there's multiple gifts that are given. Healing, forgiveness of sins, faith. But the first chronologically is physical suffering. That's what everything else flows from in the story. You realize that, I mean, without the paralysis, this paragraph doesn't happen. These men don't go to meet Jesus. The sick man doesn't hear from the Lord himself, your sins are forgiven. I mean, I'm looking forward to hearing that, but I will only hear that after death. He got to hear it before death. I mean, you want to talk about a new outlook on life. You heard the Lord God Almighty say, yes, I forgave your sins personally, you son. Yeah, I'm going to go live differently. No joke you are. But all stemming from and resulting from the tremendous gift of suffering. Maybe it would be appropriate for us the next time we have to suffer, whether that be that little cold that we get, maybe something a bit bigger, to not quite be so surly when we do it. Because it's God's mercy that we suffer at all. We suffer in this life so that we don't in the next. It's the schoolhouse of the holiness of the saints. The story continues, though. The four men, again, driven by this desperation, they have some sort of proto-faith. It's not well-informed faith. I mean, realistically, they have a buddy who's sick, and they know Jesus is the only one. And that's about all they know. I mean, according to the way Mark is telling this, this is the beginning of the ministry of Christ. It's not like he's even really showcased that much of who he is. He certainly hasn't taught them all about who he is yet. And so this is, again, maybe the way we would say it today, a long shot. They tear the roof off. They lower the guy down right there in front of Jesus and Jesus with unbelievable tenderness. My son, your sins are forgiven. Again, what a pronouncement. I long to hear that face to face. But as he says it, the scribes get grumpy. Jesus discerning in their, his spirit their displeasure. Get people like, well, he can read their minds. Have, have, you, have you ever been married? Do you need to read your wife's mind to know when she has a spirit of displeasure with your actions? I would suggest most times you do not. You can tell it instantly. Jesus makes this pronouncement of the, the man's sins to be forgiven and the The scribes get it. They understand the situation. They understand what it means because Jesus has done something intriguing. He's pronounced sins to be forgiven, which means one of a couple of things. Either he's a raving lunatic and lying out his teeth, or he's God, and there's really only, or voice of God, and there's really only, that's about the only options. 
Which is why they give this tremendous response. Who is this guy? He's a blasphemer. How dare he speak for God? Which is, for the record, 100% the right response when anybody says that except for Jesus. I mean, we vilify the scribes because, you know, we caricaturize them as these great villains. You know, they all have the black mustaches that they twirl with the big black hats and everything. And it's like, no, in any other situation, this is the right response. I mean, if, if any minister you hear pronounces your sins forgiven based on his own authority, don't listen to him anymore because he's lying. He doesn't have the authority to say that. That's blasphemy. Only, only God gets to determine if sins are forgiven. You see, that's actually the issue here with the priests is that they've, the scribes, they've got the right response to the wrong guy. Because they're not paying attention to who they're dealing with. They're only looking at the immediate right in front of them. They get hung up on his words and don't know who he is. They're not viewing him with the eyes of faith. Jesus wisely and righteously understands this. And puts it back to them in a question. Why do you question these things in your hearts? And again, it wouldn't be hard to discern this. I imagine the audible gasp would have probably given it away. Maybe that or the, oh. He would have known. And he puts it back to them in great and high rhetoric here, of glorious return. Which is easier to say? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven and it actually be true? Or is it easier for me to say, go be well, be healed? Because what's required for both of those statements to take place? Divine power. It would be the equivalent of saying, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven based on my authority, or I'm going to make the sun disappear. doesn't really matter. They're both just as difficult for a human to do because we can't do either of them. But for God, he can accomplish both of them. So Jesus puts it back rhetorically to them. Which one is it, guys? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk? Which is, which is easier to say? Neither of them is easier to say if you're telling the truth. One of them is a whole lot easier to say if you're lying. It's easy to say sins are forgiven if you're lying, because you don't know that. Only God is the one who can do it. But if you're telling the truth, they're both equally difficult. They both require divinity. They both require a power outside and greater than what any human could have. In verse 10, oh, it's so lovely. But that you may know. Now Mark does something here that They would not have caught on the way that Mark is telling this, but we can pay attention to. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, go be well. Mark does something in how he tells us, though, with key phrase there in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man... This is really intriguing. In fact, actually, verse 10 gives scholars all sorts of hiccups. Because Mark only uses that term son of man in the teachings of Jesus when Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples. 
It's the only time Mark ever uses that term is when he is specifically saying, look, I am the God man to his disciples and they're still not getting it. But it's intriguing here that it's pulled out the very beginning of the ministry of Christ to a paralytic man. To the weakest and frailest and the most desperate and the most needy of men. Oh yeah, by the way, this is God speaking. Get up, go home, be well. It's intriguing that here the Lord Jesus in infinite tenderness isn't just forgiving the man's sins, isn't just giving him physical health. He shows him a little bit more of who he is. That he's not just a man. He is a man. But he's not just a man. He's this great high priest, again, that we've been hearing about in Hebrews. Again, this is why Isaiah was in my mind of that bruised reed he won't break, the smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Here, what a tender interchange with the paralytic. I mean, to think about, again, what this guy gets to walk away with. One, the pronouncement that his sins are, well, I mean, son, that would be a really tender term. But then to have his sins forgiven, then to be made physically well, but to have the Lord Jesus identify himself in the process. I mean, you think when he goes and reads Ezekiel or reads Daniel in the future and is reading Son of Man, he'd be, it would be screaming in his head, the one who healed me. He's something different altogether. And of course, Jesus displays his might and his power. What happens? He says, go, be well. And what does the guy do? He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified, saying, we never saw anything like this. And again, I like to just periodically think through the way the miracles worked. Because a lot of times we just reduce them to like, oh yeah, Jesus, you know, he takes his divine power, snaps his fingers and the body's made well and they're fine and then they can go wandering out. But we, we, we actually forget like, I mean, it's amazing. All right, so whatever the medical condition was that paralyzed him, that was corrected. Let's say, let's just for argument's sake, let's say he had fallen somehow and like severed part of his spinal cord. So in that miracle, Jesus is healing the spinal cord. But then he also has to heal the muscles that have atrophied and the bones that have lost density so that the man doesn't immediately stand up and his legs shatter. He actually has to heal the brain inside to have the skill to walk. I mean, we watch our children walk. How long does it take them to figure that out? I mean, can you imagine trying to do that with a center of gravity up here as opposed to a center of gravity down there? How much harder is that? You see, his healing is not just the correction of a spinal injury, for argument's sake. It's a full-orbed, intimate miracle that does so much more on the inside than we will ever fully understand. How tender his healing is. How comprehensive. And I love it. The guy stands up and he walks out. You don't even get record of him saying anything in Mark. He just disappears. And everybody's like, well, I never saw anything like that. Multiple reasons. 
Never saw a guy come through the roof in the middle of a sermon. Thankfully, I've never seen that. Seen some weird stuff, but not that. Never seen a man forgive sins that way. And never seen a man healed that way. We've never seen this before. And Mark is setting us up because the world has never seen this before because this is the great Messiah, the suffering servant promised in Isaiah, the Son of God. I would maybe suggest a couple of applications. One is, I suspect that most American Christians today had they been in the room, would have been like, yeah, not surprising. Rather than, look, we never saw anything like this. I think we probably tend to be a bit jaded, a bit calloused, maybe a little bit hard, and would have been like, yeah, that's about right. Not a shocker. I mean, how often do we live in our own faith constantly and and go about our daily business and lose that sense of marvel at what God is doing. Lose that sense of wonder that he still does miracles answering the prayers of the saints. Lose that sense of just mystery at watching sanctification take place in your brothers and sisters in the faith. I mean, do our eyes still light up when we hear or see moments of intense victory and sanctification over sin in our brothers and sisters? Or are we like, yeah, I figured. (laughs) I mean, it's normal. This is what God does. Have we lost that sense of grandeur and what God is doing? Secondly, is again, going back to the suffering portion of it. Of Again, do we see suffering as actually further intensifying that sense of grandeur? As helping till the ground so that a sense of wonder grows. It's actually one of those things that we teach children when they're young. If you want to have a sense of marvel, what do you have to do? You have to learn, and learning is always hard work. You don't get to have the like, whoa, moment in the classroom if you haven't put in the hard work to get there. It just doesn't happen. You have to use your brain. And we all say it different ways. Use your noggin, right? Engage. Turn on the brain. Put your thinking cap on, whatever it is. Use your brain. Do the hard work to get to the end. Yet interestingly, sometimes as adults, we don't do that, do we? We're like, oh, suffering's hit. Ah, hard work. I can't be bothered. I'm going to go run the other way. Or lastly, may it never be that we would say, or those in our midst, get to see the miracles of God, because we've certainly seen more than a couple in this church. But miss the point. To miss the relationship, to miss the sense of wonder, to miss the love and obedience to our Savior. May it never be. Even as our culture around us goes down that path and misses so blatantly the Savior in front of them. And then lastly this, 
You realize part of why we encourage so much this hard work, this effort at growth, this godliness being cultivated in the saints is this last clause there in verse 12. We never saw anything like this. We've never seen anything that looked like this. Is one of the great mechanisms of evangelism. I mean, you realize that, that when people walk in the doors here, that's what we, we tell you to do. Invite your neighbors, invite your friends, invite your people, invite everyone. Why? Because we want them to walk into the presence of the body of Christ and the Lord Jesus himself and say, I don't know what's going on here, but I have never seen anything like this before. I mean, I, I went to a church, I probably maybe shouldn't even call it that, but I've been there, but I've never seen anything like this before. And again, that's not to say that this church is unique in that regard, right? We're part of a denomination with thousands of churches this way. Part of a, a larger body affiliation of other Presbyterian churches, that thousands of churches the same way. The World Reformed Fellowship has churches with have 50,000 members in them the same way. But may it be that we cultivate this wonder at who God is, So that even when people come in through those back doors, they would wonder at who he is by wondering at who we are. I've never seen anything like this before. Let's pray. Lord, we honor you. We bless your name. Humbly, we ask that you would give us wonder. We do such a poor job at cultivating it. Help us in our weakness, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.